But while traveling for business, a father called home to talk to his son to see how his basketball game went. So his son gets on the phone and dad says, how, how was the game? And his son said, it was great. I, I scored my first basket. And his father said, oh, that was outstanding. Did it actually help your team? And he said, well, yeah, it, it, it helped. It was, it was the winning basket. And his father goes, wow, this is just getting better and better and better. Your first basket was actually the winning basket. And he goes, well, not exactly, Dad. Um, I made the basket for the other team. Nay, in all these things, we are not just conquerors, but we are more than conquerors. How? Through him that loved us. That phrase, we are more than conquerors, it means to vanquish beyond, which means to gain a decisive victory. That's the truth. That is the truth about every born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You are more than a conqueror. This is why I said last week, there are no losers in Christ. There can't be. But the evidence that many believers do not understand the truth about winning is seen in that far too many are not living like they are more than conquerors. They're living like they have been conquered. It's the opposite of the truth. And what we're seeing here in this portion of 1 Peter chapter 3 is how to live like more than a conqueror. How do you live that? How do you actualize that in your life? How does that become something more than just words on a page? How does that become real in your life? We said last week, it starts with, you have to die to the flesh and walk in the spirit. That's where it starts. You gotta die to the flesh and walk in the spirit. So a paradox is a statement that is absurd or self-contradicting. Let me give you an example of a paradox. You ready? Here it is. A spirit-filled believer living a defeated Christian life. That's a paradox. That's an absurd, self-contradicting statement. It is. After the ninth trait in the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5.23, we find a colon. And what that colon means is that whatever Paul is going to say after that, is going to explain to us what those nine things mean or should mean in our lives. And guess what follows that colon? In Galatians 5.23, you ready? Against such, there is no law. Now here we go. This is gargantuan. It is impossible to lose when you walk in the Spirit. Against such, there is no law. It gives you these nine traits, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit and colon. Now let me tell you what that means. Against such, there is no law. In other words, if this is your spiritual reality, 
If you are walking in the power of the Spirit of God, if your life is being governed by the Holy Spirit of God, it is impossible for you to lose. Name the situation. You cannot lose. You can't. It's impossible. Again, a paradox. A spirit-filled believer living a defeated Christian life. That's a great paradox. Next, we saw the pattern for victory. We saw that we must know the score and enjoy the victory. What is the score? Biblically, it's very clear. We've overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is the score. That is the score. That's the truth. So, here we go. Listen. If you are losing, if the defeated Christian life is your testimony, I beg you, that is of your choosing, not God's or anyone else. That is the truth. But there's more for us to consider. Verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Again, uh, you'll want to go back and get the audio on that if you were not here. Which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, last week we touched on the heresy of transubstantiation, which is uh, taught primarily by the Catholic Church that says the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, that the elements involved in that, the bread and the wine or the wafer and the wine, become the literal presence of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Uh, Hebrews 7.27 says, for this he died once when he offered up himself. Okay, so that is debunked, and there are more places that we could consult to validate that. But there is another point of doctrinal error that is also debunked in this portion of 1 Peter chapter 3. The Church of Christ and the International Church of Christ hold to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, which says that no one can be regenerated spiritually apart from water baptism. That is the doctrinal erroneous teaching of that movement. And one of their proof texts is found right here in 1 Peter chapter 3 at the end of verse 20. Eight souls were saved by water. That, that's one of their proof texts. The issue with that position doctrinally is that it is debunked before we ever get out of the book of Genesis. It absolutely is. Consider Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, you look in here, who, who's Peter's guy? He's, he's going back to Noah here, right? He, he's making a comparison. He's linking, right, his point back to Noah. Well, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. He did not earn it. You see the difference? There is a difference. And please notice, Noah found the grace of God before he ever stepped onto the ark. He found this grace. The word saved in verse 20 is not referring to deliverance from the penalty of sin. It is referring to Noah and his family escaping the wrath of God that was being poured out on the world at that time. It's not talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. Far from it. In case that was not convincing enough, Peter made it crystal clear in verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now here we go. we got a parenthesis. So I want to make sure that there's no misinterpretation here of what I'm saying. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So water baptism never saved anyone, nor can it. Peter makes that clear. But the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you notice the like figure? This is a picture that we're getting. Water baptism is an outward picture of a spiritual reality. That's what it is. That's what it means. That's what it represents in the life of the believer in the church age when they are baptized by immersion. That's the story. So when the believer is baptized by immersion, they are doing so because they are saved, not to get saved. You can't miss that. And this is reinforced by the the parenthetical, excuse me, statement in verse 21. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It, It has no bearing on anyone's salvation. It is the result of it. Remember, Peter was writing to many Jewish people at this time, Jewish believers, who would have been familiar, very familiar, with ritual baptism. And so he had to clarify this. But if Peter was teaching baptismal regeneration, then he was very confused. Because look at what he said in chapter 1 and verse 3 of this book. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That phrase, hath begotten us again, listen, was translated in chapter 1 of verse 23 as born again. And how were we begotten? How were we born again? According to his abundant mercy and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, not baptism. Just so we're clear doctrinally. Now that we know what Peter was not saying, we do need to give our attention to what he was saying. Because there is 
There is, we're going to get more data now, more insight into how we put this thing together when we're talking about victory in our lives. Water baptism for the believer in the church age is an essential act of obedience. And that speaks to what Peter was saying in verse 21. Look at it again. But the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now that should sound familiar to you. And let me just give you a heads up. Whenever something sounds familiar to you because you're sensing that it is repetitive, that is a massive nudging. That is a massive cluing in from the Holy Spirit of God that you must pay attention. That there is something that God really wants you to get. Kind of like when you see the double usage of a name. Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. In other words, pay very close attention. It's the same principle here. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Uh, In this very chapter, again, verse 16, chapter 3, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Do you think this issue of having a good conscience toward God, you think it's a big deal? Yes. You think it matters to God? Absolutely it does. The fact that we encounter this three times in this short epistle tells us that we really want to pay attention here. Listen, a good conscience toward God means that we are right with God. It means that we are right before him, we are right with him. Name the scenario, name the situation, name the day, name the location, doesn't matter. We are right before him and we are right with him. So here we go. This is, you ready? I mean, listen, I know you want to win. I know you want to win. I don't think anybody signs up to lose. The reality is we've already won. It's, it's actualizing that. I, I know you want to win. But here we go. Here's another observation. Regardless of the situation, do what is right. If you want to win, you want to realize the victory that is truly yours in Jesus Christ, regardless of the situation, do what is right. That's it. If you are living the defeated Christian life, I promise you, this is one of the core reasons as to why. So at this point, we encounter a truth that I am telling you. The Lord would have you and me to get. Like I said last week, it is so hard to watch people struggle. It is so hard to to watch people wallow in defeat and and, and the opposite of everything that God has for them. I read somewhere that Jesus Christ did not come just to give us life. But what kind of life? 
abundant. But there are so many who are cut off from it. Or subtly, we perceive that it's elusive. Like, ah, man, it's like as soon as you try and get it, it, like it, it runs off. It's like it teases you, right? No, please, hear this. There is no situation that excuses us from doing right according to God's Word. This is what God would have you to know. There is no situation that excuses us from doing right according to God's Word. This is one of the reasons why many are losing. Because they come to a situation, they come to a scenario, something happens in or around their life, and they say, okay, based on this circumstance, based on this scenario, I will now excuse myself from God's Word. You understand, (laughs) we've had... We've had issues in our country, not not just in the last couple of years, with, with social injustice and all this, that, and the other. And and it's it's it is for me, it's humorous because during some of those tumultuous events, I would have white believers reach out to me, and they really wanted to hear what I thought. Well, Kenny, we we. we we, we want to hear from you because we're, we're not sure how to think about this. We want to make sure we don't misstep and offend anybody. Let me tell you subtly what that meant. Subtly what that means, and this is what some do. Well, because I'm a black man, I get to now excuse myself from the word of God and tell you what I think. Forget about it. No. There is never a scenario, a circumstance, a situation where I am excused from the Word of God to think, speak, and act on my own. It doesn't matter what I think. The only thing that matters is what He has said. So whatever He has said is what I think. Amen. Again, Peter used Noah's ark in this pattern for victory that we are seeing. Would you consider Genesis 6, verse 9? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. The root of that word righteous is right. Noah did what was right despite being surrounded by many who were not doing what was right. Noah did not excuse himself from doing what was right because of the situation. Neither did Joseph. Neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Neither did Daniel. 
all of those men found themselves in situations where it would have been more than convenient. It would have been easy for them to justify, to excuse themselves from doing what was right. But they didn't. They did not. Their circumstances were hard, but they did what was right. Listen, listen, listen. About 93 to 94% of the people who call Life Fellowship home are married. They're couples. Praise the Lord. That's great. I think that's wonderful. But there are marriages in this class who are suffering. You know why? Because we have husbands who are waiting for their wives to submit to them before they will love them like Christ loved the church. And we have wives who are waiting for their husbands to love them like Christ loved the church before they will submit to their husbands. Both are dead wrong. Both are dead wrong. Because that approach, what does it do? It excuses you. It gives you an out. Here's why I am okay to step away from the Word of God and not obey, not do what's right. That's why you're losing. That's why you're losing. Whenever we take that approach, that marriage or name the situation, it only deteriorates. If it's bad, it's only going to get worse. Why? Consider the Word of God, James 4.17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not. What is it? Sin. Well, you know, uh, Lori is, uh, she, she's off today. She's being moody. She's being difficult. She's being selfish. She's being hard. Uh, she, she's, not, she, she's not meeting my needs today, so I'll tell you what. I'll wait for her to get her act together. And as soon as she does, I'll give her some love. God says, you know what's good. You know what's right. You know what the Bible says to you as a husband. Do it. Please, boy, I... <laughs> Hang with me, because I want to share something with you that we all must accept. And from what I'm seeing and from what I've seen, this gets harder to accept as we get older. But please, dial in. Listen. The only thing that we truly have control over is our personal obedience or disobedience. That is the only thing that we truly have control over. That's it. The only thing that I can truly control in this life, in relationships with people, is my personal obedience or disobedience. That is it. One of the ways, listen, one of the ways 
that believers routinely give place to the devil in their life is through obsessing over someone's disobedience. Where they are locked in, razor-focused, just obsessed. Well, look, they aren't doing, oh, oh, look, over here. Oh, yep, yep, they're wrong here. Yep, they're off here. Oh, look at that over there. They're really missing the boat there. Preoccupied. The problem with that is you have no control over that. You can't make people do anything. You can't make someone obey. You can't make them disobey. You can't. And and obsessing over the disobedience of others, listen, always leads to disobedience in our lives. It does. Why? Because you're more focused on what someone else is not doing than you are what you know you should be doing. So as a husband, my focus is never to be locked in on everything the Bible says to Lori as a wife. Where I'm just fixated on that. No, I've got plenty to be preoccupied with as a husband. I know what the Word of God clearly says to me. Christians in the Roman Empire at this time had no control over the wicked people who were persecuting them. What they could control, though, was what God required of them. That they had complete control over that. Therefore, in hard situations in particular, there is a question that we always must answer. You ready? What does God require of me? What does God require of me? Not what does God require of my spouse? Not what does God require of my children? Not what does God require of my neighbor, my coworker, my brother, my sister, my pastor, whatever. What does God require of me in this situation? What does the Word of God specifically say to me in terms of what my response needs to be before God? Because ultimately, what matters in all of this, as far as God is concerned, as it pertains to me, is what? That I am right with God. That my conscience is clear, it is void of offense, that in the process of all of this, I don't misstep and offend him. And when you do what God requires of you, how can you lose? How can you lose? So in verse 18, we see the death of Christ. In verse 19, we see his burial. And at the end of verse 21, this figure of baptism, this act of obedience after salvation, 
we see that we're saved, or God saved us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this picture, we see the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we have called this a pattern for victory. You see it there. But there is something else for us to consider in this pattern for victory. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Christ did what was required of him before God. And it led to him sitting on the right hand of God. This is the position of great power and authority. I think he won. I don't think he lost. I don't think he lost. Even though he submitted himself and he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross, even though he was mistreated and spat upon and mocked and scourged and abused and whipped beyond human comprehension and treated less than a dog and a slave, at the end of the day, when the dust cleared, he was anything but a loser. He won. Why? Because he glorified God, because he pleased God, because he did what was required of him. And I am pleading with you to understand and embrace if you would just do what is right. You cannot lose. Would you notice? Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So the angelic realm, governmental powers are subject to him. This is, again, this is why we should never lose sleep over this, over the nonsense of politics. Remember we talked about that? What party... Uh, is God a part of the sovereignty party? <sighs> name it. Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. Name the candidate. Name the official. They are subject to him, even if they don't know it. That's why I don't have to get uptight and argue and blast Facebook and all this nonsense that people do where they expose their ignorance. At the end of the day, I don't care if the election was fraudulent or not. When the dust clears, I know who is on the throne. But here's the question. Are you subject to him? The angelic realm is. The governmental powers, they are. Every institution of authority, every spiritual power, anything you can see, name, think of, is subject to him. But the question right now is, are you? Are you subject to him? Now, I want to point something out that men uh, tend to conveniently gloss over. And it's found right here in Ephesians 5.24. 
Uh, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ. Yeah, okay, cool. Let's get to the next part. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The second half of that verse gets a lot more attention than the first. Mainly for men. But don't miss it. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, the church is co-ed. It's men and women. So you ready? We're going to put a bow on this this morning right here. (laughs) Again, God has given us a clear game plan to win. You ready? Know and stay in your place. Know and stay in your place. That's men and women. The believer's place before Christ is subordination. That's your place. Know it and stay there. Your place is subordination. In the church being subject to Christ, it means that the church is subordinate to Him. This says that the church is inferior to Christ in order, power, and importance. The reason that many are losing and struggling is because we're battling with Christ for preeminence. Colossians 1.18 makes it clear that in all things he might have what? The preeminence, that means first and rank. But we're battling with Christ for that because when it comes to my mind, I want to be first. In terms of what I think, when it, when it comes to my speech, I want to be first in terms of saying what I think people need to hear. When it, when it comes to my behavior, I want to be preeminent. I want to be first in terms of doing what, what seems and feels right to me. You're out of place. You are trying to appoint yourself to the place of preeminence and thinking you can somehow win. That's impossible. If you own a business or you manage employees in the workplace, I doubt that you have a tolerance for insubordination. I doubt it. If you owned a business and you had an employee that came to work whenever they felt like it and and when they were there, they worked sometimes and a lot of times they didn't. They took three-hour lunches. I got a feeling that's going to come to an end. I got a feeling you're going to tell them thanks, but no thanks. Maybe there was another company that will tolerate this, but this isn't the place. Please. The ultimate cause of a defeated Christian life, you ready? Is insubordination to Christ. That's the ultimate cause. That's it. I 
will not be subject to what you say. I'm going to do what I think. I'm going to say what I think. And then, when it all falls apart, I'm going to blame you and anybody that I can for the reason as to why I'm failing. No, the truth is, we're failing, we're losing. Because insubordination, listen to me, Here's what Christ wants you to know, and I'm almost done. Please, if, I, if you miss anything I said, I beg you, please, even if you hate me, this is truth. The Lord Jesus Christ will not tolerate insubordination from anyone. It's intolerable. If you, especially if you belong to him, if you belong to him and you're going to thumb your nose at his word and do you as they say, he will personally see to it that the path to victory in your life is blocked. And he will assist you in your misery by intensifying it. Read Haggai chapter 1. You'll see exactly what I'm saying. Brothers and sisters, I love you. My heart for you. Are you kidding me? But this is what it is. And we can't expect to win when we step away from it. The price is too steep. Father, in Jesus' name, I know how imperfect I am, (laughs) but God, would you please take the truth and the principles from your word and let these things land in our hearts and in our minds. God, you want us to win, and you've shown us a clear pattern to do so. God, I pray for your people. I pray for myself that we would take heed to these things. In Jesus' name, amen.